Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have a double whammy, double Parsha, as we finish up the book of Bamidbar. A double. It's the theme of the week. Parsha series is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Grossman. Our learning should be Le'ilei Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manash. We remain incredibly grateful to the Grossman, to the Grossman and Katz family for their generosity. We are on page 900, Parsha's Matos. And then we will hopefully please have time Please, God, have time to get into Masa as well. Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the Jewish people, and he said, this is the thing that Hashem has commanded. Some of the Farshim are bothered. We're not going to get into. Where did Hashem command? Moshe seems to be initiating this mitzvah here, the laws of the Dharam. But where was it commanded from Hashem? They get into it. A man takes a vow to Hashem. If a person makes an oath to establish a prohibition upon himself, a neder is a very, very powerful thing. It reminds us of the power of speech, of the power of language. Right now, a piece of chazer, a piece of pork is not kosher. If I eat it, I'm liable. If I eat it, there are consequences. It is categorically non-kosher. On the other hand, potato chips are perfectly kosher. Cape Cod has the OU. It's kosher. But a neder is my ability to say, Hare Alai, these potato chips should be forbidden to me. And when I say those words, they're not empty. They're not meaningless. I have the capacity. I have the ability through the words that I use to transforms, transform that which was inherently permissible and to make it forbidden. It's the power of language, the power of speech. Not only can Hashem from above determine and dictate what is forbidden and what is permissible, but I, we, through the language we use through our words, that is the power of language, that is the power of our words. Our words impact and they create reality. And that's part of the message of Parshas Matos. We remember it each and every year. The power of our words. Rabbi Soloveitchik explained that is why the holiest night of the year, Yom Kippur night, we gather even though it's night, the only time of the year we wear a talus, we wear a kittel, we come together, we're already fasting. And how do we launch? How do we initiate? How do we begin this holiest 25-hour period of the year? We say kol nidre. And if you ever looked at the translation of kol nidre, you say to yourself, seriously? This is it? This is the proclamation? This is the exclamation? This is what we're singing? I won't uh, put on my best chazan voice to sing kol nidre for you now. I'll spare you, even though it is the three weeks, and it would add to your sense of grief, but I'll spare you nonetheless. But Kol Nidre, the Chazin belts out, and arguably among the most moving and stirring tunes, liturgy of the whole Yom Noraim period, Kol Nidre. And if you read it in the English, all my vows and all my oaths and all my promises should be annulled. We're going through some detailed process and procedure of reversing and annulling vows. That's how you launch the holiest day of the year? Nersalavitchik said, yes, absolutely. You know why? Because what is Yom Kippur if not a day to reflect and to take responsibility for how we've used and abused the power of language, the promises we made and didn't keep, and the promises we'll make now for the year ahead, will we follow through? And before we engage a 25-hour period, of using our words through that machzer, reflecting on the promises and pledges past and the sincerity of the promises and pledges we're about to make before we use our words, we remember the power of words, that words create reality, nedarim, that we, with our words we make a neder and we change a reality. And that's why ish or neder l'ashem, if we take a neder or shuvah, the difference between the two is chefta and gavra. Does it apply to the object or does it apply to the person? But both, lo yachel dvaro, the Torah tells us, do not yachel, Rashi says, miloshan chulen. Yachel, kamalo yachalel dvaro, lo yaseh dvarav chulen. Don't make your words profane. What is chulen? We say Friday, we say Motzei Shabbos. We end Shabbos, the opposite bookend of Kiddush. We say havdalah. Lahavda ben kodesh lechol. We distinguish between that which is holy and that which is profane. Lo yachel dvar, your dibor, davar, our words, the reality we create is holy. Lo yachel dvaro, when you don't fulfill a promise, when you say you're going to be there at a certain time and you come late, when you say I'll call you back and you don't call back, when you say don't worry, 
I'll click the link, I'll make the donation, I'll join the global community. And you don't? Lo yachel dvaro, you've taken your word. Your dibur creates a davar. Our words create reality. And instead of creating a positive reality, we've turned them into chulen. We've made them profane. We've made them unholy. Lo yachel dvaro. You have to mean what you say and follow through on your word and your word is your bond. It means something. Our sense of punctuality, our sense of following through, it all has to mean something. Lo yachel dvaro. And then the Torah tells us the laws of the Dharm don't only apply to men. Ish ki yidor neder. And if a woman takes a vow, it depends. If she's a child in her father's home, he has the capacity to annul the vow. If they're married and the, her vow affects her husband, her husband has the ability to undo and to annul the vow. The Gemara Nida tells us, the Mishnah, now, normally for a vow to take effect, for a boy to be a man is what age? Not a trick question. 13 years old. A boy becomes a man, becomes a gadol, a cotton becomes a gadol. At 13, that's the bar mitzvah. That's when mitzvahs apply, and that's when the laws in the dharam kick in. But a girl, the Mishnah tells us, is earlier. The Gemara in the Mishnah Nida Memheim Abbas tells us, Bas Achas of Yom Echad, a young lady of 11 and a day, Nidareha Nivdakim. We check, we evaluate the quality of her promise. Rashi says, Does she know to whom she's making this promise? Does she understand the significance? How binding it is, the consequence that goes with it. From 12 years and on, then they are binding. But a boy, 12, you check. That's what Rashi says. And the Gemara looks and wonders. What's the reason? Why are a girl's vows binding before the age of a boy? One could ask in general, why a girl is a gedola before a boy becomes a gadol? The girl's bas mitzvah is celebrated at 12 years old. A boy's bar mitzvah is not marked until he's 13 years old. And there's several reasons offered having to do with physical maturity and the age of godless reflecting the capacity to conceive, to parent, to bear responsibility, which for a girl is earlier. But the other reason the Gemara says is, Kodesh Baruch Hu gives a woman, A young woman has greater insight, wisdom, intuition, more bina than a, than a man, than a boy. We know that because women were created from man's rib. It doesn't mean, as we think, man was fully fashioned and woman was extracted. But the Medrash tells us there was an androgynous figure, half man, half woman, divided, split in half. But the image that the Torah uses to tell us this is Vayiven Asatzel, a woman was fashioned, she was built, Vayiven, should have said Vayivra, Vayitzer, formed or created, why Vayiven, built? Because the Lashon Vayiven, to build, is Bina Yesera, greater wisdom, greater insight. Women have greater insight, greater wisdom, greater intuition, greater instinct. Uvetosvei Arash, the Tosos Arash writes, Hiktim ba Bina Yoser Mebiish. Women, girls, mature cognitively, intellectually, faster than boys. The Ritva says similarly, They can understand faster. All you have to do is go into a middle school classroom that has boys and girls, watch the way the two behave, and you will see. Any teachers here? Any retired teachers here? <laughs> boys are first fully fashioning. They're not yet even fully created human beings. <laughs> and girls with the pen and the notebook and they're listening and they're scribbling. And this is a generalization, but it's true. And it's complimentary to young women, so you're allowed to say it without being canceled. Although if you just distinguish, maybe you're in trouble. But girls, they mature not only physically faster in terms of conception, but they mature intellectually, emotionally, cognitively. And why did Hashem create a world? Why did Hashem create a world where women, in fact, mature faster? So the Rambam writes in his parish of Mishnais, the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah, 
And the Ibn Ezra writes similarly that this is what the Rambam writes. When it comes to Nadarim, our parsha, girls, their word is binding earlier than a boy because they mature faster and are capable of bearing the consequence, the responsibility, the understanding of the value of their word. Why? Because girls, women, have a shorter lifespan than men. We've mentioned this Rambam, this parish Mishnayis, before. Is that true? Women have a shorter lifespan than men, and that is why their life is sort of consolidated or condensed. They physically mature faster and intellectually mature faster. And the Ibn Ezra as well. Is that true? The answer is it was true. And why was it true? Largely because women died in childbirth. But it's no longer true today. 2021, the average life expectancy of women, this is in Israel. In America, it's shorter. But in Israel, it's longer. You want to live longer? Yet another reason to make Aliyah. Women live 84.6 years, and men live 80.5 years. Why do men die before their wives? I won't finish it. The off chance that my wife is listening, I will not finish it. But women have, in fact, the opposite of what the Rambam and Ibn Ezra write. Women today, today, thank God, with breakthrough and the miracle that we should never take for granted of healthy pregnancy and healthy childbirth, where both a child or children and mother emerge healthy. That's why a woman benches Gomel. It was life-threatening. That's why a woman should not induce, unless medically mandated, medically indicated, just because the woman is sick and tired of being pregnant, or this birthday works out better, it's not grounds. The Bear Moshe, the Tshuva's Bear Moshe writes, when a woman is in labor, she's in a life-threatening situation. When Hashem puts you there, then you're there. But you can't be there on your own. You don't induce unless medically, unless medically informed. So women died for all of history and therefore had a shorter lifespan than men. Today, it's the reverse. Women live longer. In America, neither men nor women, it's still in the late 70s. It hasn't yet passed 80. In Israel, 84.6 years, 80.5 for men. Why is that? Very interesting. It's not the purpose of Parsha perspectives, but there are physiological differences between men and women, heart disease, and uh, chromosomes. Number two, women take care of their health better than men. It turns out they take much better care of themselves. They also have social relationships. One of the things that accelerates death is loneliness. And women who are social and out and talking and schmoozing, and in fact, helps protect and preserve better health and longer life, and men who are hermits and want to live alone in a cave that might feel better in the moment, but it's not good for their health, and uh, other such differences. Some biology, other differences in a fascinating article. I won't get into who drives better and whatever. <clears throat> that would not account for women living longer than men, in my experience. In my experience. But... In any case, that is the Rambam and the Ibn Ezra on this uh, law of Nidarim. I raised it because it should make us incredibly grateful that unlike in their time, today it is reversed because Baruch Hashem, the blessing and the blessed time that we live. Perak Lamed Aleph Pasuk Dalad. Moving right along in the laws of Nidarim. Then we go over to taking revenge for what happened with Midian. Midian, Balak, Bilam, the curse was unsuccessful but the uh, provocative promisc promiscuity was, brought a great plague, Jewish people suffered. So Hashem says, it's time. I don't get even, I don't get angry, I get even. Hashem spoke to Moshe and he said, take revenge against the children of the Jewish people. Take vengeance for the children of the Jewish people. Take revenge against Midian for what they did. By the way, right afterwards, this is the last act of leadership of your life because right afterwards, te'asef elamecha. Do this last thing and then you'll be gathered to your people. Then you will die. It'll be the end of your life. It's like Hashem, several places here at the end of the Torah, at the end of Moshe's life, Hashem gives like a shtickle zinger. He gives him a little bit of a reminder. You're not going in. It's all over. It's time. But Hashem is loving and kind and Moshe is his most loyal servant. Why would Hashem do that? It's an excellent question for another time. 
But why do I raise it? Because here's the amazing thing Mepharshim point out. Moshe Rabbeinu was just informed, do this last act of service, this last act of leadership, and then when it's done, you're done. What would you do if that was you? Take your time, you delay, savor it, come up with excuses why it's taking so long. You would be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You'd procrastinate. What does Moshe Rabbeinu do? Hey, chaltzu. He runs, he rushes with zeal, with alacrity, with energy, with enthusiasm. It never wanes. He never slows. He never tires. And he understands that whatever is the will of Hashem is what he's meant to be doing then. And no matter the consequence, no matter what would kick in when he was done, it never impacted him to slow down. He just kept going and going and going. So the Pasuk says, in this context, Moshe responds in the affirmative. Vaydaber Moshe he turns to him and he says, Hey, no, let's get going. It's time to identify and recruit people for the army. And we're going to inflict Hashem's vengeance against Midian. It's another great question which we won't address together. I thought Nekamazasar, Losikam Velositor, you're not allowed to take revenge. That's good for us, but not good for God. That's Hashem's expectation of us, but not of Hashem. We can't take revenge. He can. Over and over here, Nekam Nikmas, and we're going Nikmas Hashem. Hashem is going to take revenge, revenge, revenge. How do you reconcile that? Again, question for you to consider. A thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe, you should separate. There's an amazing Medrash Tanchuma and Medrash Rabbah on this Pasuk. 3,000 soldiers were recruited and identified from each tribe, 12,000 in order to go fight the war. So why do we repeat it? It's redundant. A thousand from each tribe, a thousand from each tribe. Why do we repeat the expression, the phrase? Says the Medrash, Because in fact, for every thousand that were recruited to carry a weapon, to be on the front line, to wage war, to protect the people, there were a thousand designated to daven on their behalf. In order that there was 1,000 to daven for each thousand that went out. And the Medrash is very wondrous. It says, He only went out to war after consulting the Urim Vitumim. After Hashem gave his consent, thumbs up, green light, you got this. I'll have your back. I'll be by your side. You'll be triumphant and victorious. You'll come home having won. So if we know going in that we're going to win, why do you need to daven? Why do you need to daven? Hashem already told you the outcome. So why do you have to daven? He already told you you're going to win. Even when a person is confident, even when a person knows they're going to emerge victorious, they're going to win, they're going to have what they want, the result that they crave. Even when Hashem is promised through the consultation of the Urim V'tumim, Lo yazniach milishpoch siyach tomid l'Hashem izborach, shebechdei lezakos l'shuas Hashem, tzorch l'espalo b'chol itz v'kayim ha-posok, bikshu panav tamid. Even when you know the outcome, you have to daven nonetheless. Because the outcome is dependent on the davening. The davening is the key that opens the treasure house from which the shefa bracha, from which the flow comes from above. So I've given you this metaphor before. You could have the winning meta mi- mega millions ticket, which I think is up to some 700 million or something again. Or maybe there was a winner last night, tonight. I don't know when it is. 10% to the shul, don't forget. You could hold the winning ticket but unless you turn it in, you can't get the cash prize. If you have that ticket and it sits in your wallet in your safety deposit box, you can have all the numbers, you can tell everyone you won, but your bank account remains empty unless you turn in the ticket. Davening is the ticket. It's true, there's a designation, we won. Hashem has set aside and allocated Shefa Bracha for us in our lives. How do we access it? How do we get it? It only gets wired to us when we daven. 
davening is the key that opens the door that releases the bracha that's been designated for us. And you see that here, says the Otsuplosa Torah, because they consulted the Urim Atumim, they knew the outcome of the war. Hashem sent them to go avenge, take revenge for him. And despite it all, Elaf Lamata, Elaf Lamata. There was one for each, a thousand to fight and a thousand to daven for those who fought. Rav Kook, Rav Simcha Kohen Kook, Zechat Tzadik Levracha, was the chief rabbi of Rechovo, who had been a guest in our community, a very special person. Several years ago, in one of the wars with Gaza, he actually launched a program where you'd sign up to get a name of a soldier in the IDF, and you would daven for that soldier. And he quoted this Medrash Tanchuma, Elaf Lamata, Elaf Lamata. If you're not in the army, there's no excuse that you're not davening for the army. And not generically davening for the army, but get a soldier's name and daven for that soldier. That's your soldier. For every thousand who serve, there are a thousand who have their names and daven specifically for them. Because it's davening that opens the lock, that opens the door, that releases the bracha, even when it's promised and even when we know it is going to come. Good. Moving along. Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk Aleph. Next Perak. Moshe rebukes, I'll tell you what we're skipping. Moshe rebukes the officers. They, spoiler alert, they win. And in the spoiler alert, you get the spoils. When you win, they collect the spoils of the war. And what was included in the spoils of the war? Interesting. You got to come home with a gift for your spouse. You got to. When you go on a business trip, you have to come home with a gift for your spouse. I think one of the first missions I ran when I was yet the assistant rabbi, my mother told me two pieces of advice when I came home. She said, number one, you're going to be exhausted. You barely slipped. You ran around. Don't complain to your wife how tired you are because you left her with the kids. She's more tired than you. That was good advice, number one. You remember that, Ma? Number two, bring a gift. Come home with something. So I was in the airport, and I remembered I didn't get a gift. So I found a jewelry store in the airport. There was, I think it was called H. Stern. And I found something, and I came home. And my wife, I don't think, was ever as angry at me as she was to hear that I bought something at H. Stern in the airport and paid that price for a piece of jewelry. <laughs> she found a place, H. Stern in Miami, returned it, Baruch Hashem. But you have to come home with a gift. You have to come home with a gift. So what did the, what did the army come home with after the war with Midian? There was no jewelry store in Midian. But to the victor go the spoils. So they went into the kitchen of the Midianites and they found the bread maker and they found the George Foreman grill and they found incredible crystal and china and silverware and they came home with the gifts. But what's the problem with these gifts? <coughs> They're used. What do you need to do to them before you could use them? You have to kasher them. So the Torah here has includes in it the laws of kashering. The laws of tefillah, you got to still bring it to the mikvah. All that is derived from our parsha, from these psukim. We've discussed them in the past. Go on the previous parsha, shiurim, and you'll find beautiful descriptions in these psukim. Tefillah's kalim, why? Why do we have to convert our kalim by bringing them to the mikvah? How does kashering work? And what is the analog? How does that relate to kashering ourselves? Listen to previous year's Parsha class. Divided the spoils among the tribes, and then we have a detailed description of it. Paraklamid Beis Pasagaf, we're on page 910, in the art scroll, Among the 12 tribes, two tribes happened to be incredibly entrepreneurial, were phenomenal business people, and they had a lot of mikne rav, they had abundant livestock. The entrepreneur is always looking how they can do well. Where can their animals graze? Where can they set up shop? Where is the business opportunity? Inflation is at an incredible high. You know which state is the highest inflation in the country? You guessed it, state of Florida. Here, we're not happy to be number one. Many other ways we are, but not inflation. But smart, shrewd business people even see a economic downturn and find opportunity. Business people are always looking. By the way, if you're one of those people and you have the opportunity, 
let me know offline. But if you find the opportunity. So B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain were such people. Everyone else is looking. Look at the mountains. Look at the cloud. Look at the view. Look at our freedom. B'nai God and Ruvain say, ooh, that land is perfect for grazing our livestock. We could expand our holdings. We can sell, make money. We can go public. B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain are always looking. They've got the, the business cup. And they see a land that's perfect. So they approach the leaders and they say, got a proposal for you. We found these cities, these areas, and they're perfect for livestock. And guess who's got livestock? We've got abundant livestock. We've got an incredible portfolio of livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, you I know the plan, we're all supposed to go into the land. I know we're supposed to travel as a group. But is it okay if we break away? Do you mind if we set up shop east of the Yardane? East of the Yardane. And what's Moshe's reaction? What does Moshe say? Are you crazy? Your brothers are going to go risk their lives and go to war and be at the front lines of securing the destiny of the Jewish people. And you are going to sit comfortably here because there's better business opportunity? Because you can make more money? Because it's more comfortable and more convenient? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? That's what you're going to do? You're going to dissuade the heart of the Jewish people from crossing the land? How are they going to feel? What are they going to think when they see you remain behind and they see you sit back? That's not what you saw in your ancestors. Hashem got angry and you've got to come. And he enters this condition. I'll tell you what. If you come with us and you first enter the land, then you can come back and you can settle here. And who are the ones who approach him? B'nai God and B'nai, it's not a trick question, B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain. And what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? Whom does he include also? Menashe. Where did Menashe come in? They didn't ask. And all of a sudden Moshe divides them and sends half of Menashe in with Ruvain and God? Why did he do that? And why specifically Menashe? And what's going on here in this conversation? They had a lot of abundant livestock. Great in numbers. Great in numbers. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's criticism? He wasn't criticizing their lack of tzionut. Where's your love and longing to go into the land? He was questioning their loyalty. It seems selfish. You have better business opportunities, so you're staying here. Everyone else has to risk their life. So what do Ruven and God do? They clarify. No, 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 no. Moshe, we weren't going to sit back comfortably. Of course. We're going to put on the uniform. We're going to take the gun. We're going to drive the tank. Of course. Don't worry. We'll set up our business here. We'll build pens for our flock cities, for our children, and then we're coming with you. So Moshe says, you're partly right. I'll give you permission to inhabit the land east of the Ardain on a condition, on a tenai. And what is it? First, you enter the land, and then you come back. But Moshe does something very subtle. He reverses. He says, build cities for your children, and set up flocks for your cattle, and come fight with us. They said, first we'll build flocks for our cattle, and cities for our children. The main point is they agree to come fight. When Moshe confirms it, he repeats the part of the pen in the cities that seems so tangential. But when you read the section carefully, it all becomes clear. It's a very powerful mission. That's why I like to review it. What was their original reason? They advanced. They saw the land east of the Yardane and they thought it'd be perfect to advance their business needs. It's a land of livestock. And we have a great livestock business. And when Moshe responds, he is confirmed they'll come fight, but he gives them a subtle musr. By reversing, they said, we'll build pens for our flock and then we'll build cities for our children. And Moshe Rabbeinu reverses the order. Now he knew that Reuven and God valued their children. What parent doesn't love their children? But their financial ambition made them sound like they valued their money 
even more than their children. Not only did they prioritize where to live based on financial interest over spiritual ones, but they talked about taking care of their assets before they spoke about taking care of their own children. The Medrash here on this parasha elaborates, They were more concerned about their money than their sons and daughters because they put their flock ahead of their children. It's not right. The main thing has to be the main thing. And the secondary, the secondary. Your children come first, they're the top priority. Now, interestingly, the Medrash calls children what? Iker, Iker, and Tuffel, Tuffel. So the Medrash calls our children primary, Iker, and our assets, our business interests, Tuffel, secondary. Reuven and God aren't criticized for accumulating material things. They're not criticized or condemned for having professional or career ambition. What are they criticized for? Confusing what is primary and what is secondary. There's nothing wrong with having ambition and drive of wanting to have abundant livestock. There's nothing wrong with achieving material success. What's wrong is not understanding what's primary and what's secondary. Is not understanding and appreciating that our children and our family, that our souls and our spirituality, it all comes first. That all that material success and all that ambition is a platform to be able to elevate and to drive our spirituality, our family, our continuity, our future, and our legacy. That's what it's all there for. They're not criticized for ambition. They're criticized for confusing and having the wrong priorities. There's someone else in Chumash that's described as having Miknerav. He doesn't get this criticism. Anyone know who it is? Who had Miknerav? Avram Avinu. Vi Avram Kaved Maod. Uvazav. Avram was very laden. He had abundant livestock, silver and gold. The Nachlas Tzvi explains that with Avram, it first mentions his name and the fact that he had Mikneh. His wealth and assets aren't descriptions of his essence or identity. They're simply part of his life. Who am I? I'm a Yid. I learn Torah. I do mitzvahs. I give tzedakah. I volunteer for chesed. I love my family. And I pass these priorities on to the next generation. Oh, I also happen to have a lot of money or a nice house or a nice car or nice jewelry. But that's not who I am. It's not my identity. When it comes to Avram Avinu, it says, what? What appears first? His name. Avram Avinu. He's a neshama. He happens to have a lot of things. Who is he? He's Avram who has a lot of things. How does it appear in our parsha? It says first their things and then their names because they define themselves by their things. You know who I am? my car collection, my jewelry, my portfolio, my companies, my assets, my net worth. That's me. They confused their net worth with who they were. That's how they valued themselves. They saw their materialism as an ends unto itself instead of a means. They got it upside down and inside out. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is being critical of. He's not criticizing that they have nice things. He's criticizing Iker, Iker, and Tafel, Tafel, that they got it backwards, they got it upside down, they got it wrong, they got it wrong. Now it's interesting, Rashi comments too, that B'nai Gan and B'nai Reuven were more concerned about their assets than their sons and daughters, and that's why Moshe gives them this subtle, subtle um, Musr. Now it's interesting, there's another difference between the two statements, how B'nai Gan and B'nai Reuven formulate it, and how Moshe Rabbeinu responds to them. This is Rav Shaul Alter, the Ger Rosh Hashiva, Shlita, points out, they say they want to build Po here. They come and they say, can we build Po east of the Yardin? When Moshe responds, he says, Lachem, build for yourselves. Physical cities and buildings of bricks and mortars are also in the larger picture, only temporary. The primary focus is on the eternal. You must invest in your children such chinuch and such an approach to life. Moshe Rabbeinu concludes, ta'asu. Right, that's how he concludes. So I'll make a deal, condition. In fact, in halacha, we call conditions 
Tanai b'nei Gad b'nei Ruvain. If a person wants to make a condition in a transaction, in a business deal, in halacha, they have to formulate and articulate the transaction, the condition, the same way Ruvain and Gad did. Tanai kodem lalav, Tanai kaful, all the ways that they did it, we have to do it. How does Moshe Rabbeinu conclude? He says, I'll make you the deal. I'll make you the deal. You come fight, then you go back, to Naikafel, to Hang Kodun Lalav, and so on. And then he concludes this section. He turns to them and he says, ta'asu. That which leaves your mouths, ta'asu, carry out. You have to do. Chinuch says of Shol Alter, this word, these three words, this pasuk, hayotze mipichem ta'asu. Chinuch is not just about your words. It's not about your instruction. It's about our example. Whatever leaves your mouth, carry out. You need to teach by demonstration, by doing it in your own behavior. If you want to influence a child, it's not just words or lip service. They have to see what we do. And that's what we say in Kriya Shema. And all this that you place on your heart. First the words have to be on your own heart. Then teach them to your children. How? How do you sit in your home? How do you go on the way? It's the time of year many go on vacation. So on vacation, do you also find dominion? Do you also keep kosher? Do you also make time to learn? Do you also carry yourself as a mensch with derech heretz? Do you also observe the laws of modesty? How are we vishinantam levanecha? How do we teach? Not with our words and not with what the teachers say in school for all those dollars. How? how we carry ourselves and how we conduct ourselves. And that's why Moshe concludes the section and he tells them, Whatever you say, you must do. They have to see. Later on, the oath taken by B'nai Gab B'nai Ruvain, they say, They switched from Po to Sham. They hadn't changed locations. Why'd they switch? Po. Originally, the deal was Po. Then it became Sham. Why'd they switch? At first, from the top of their list of priorities with material possessions, they felt connected. They said, Po. After accepting Moshe Rabbeinu's Musr, they focused on their Ruchnius and they felt removed from the place they referred to it as there. They went from Po to Sham. Two changes in the formulation and they learn from both. They formulate it one way, Moshe switches it, and when they answer, they adopt. Moshe Rabbeinu, both of Moshe Rabbeinu's changes. Why? Because they get the subtle Musr from Moshe Rabbeinu. Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis. Lamed Beis, sorry, Yud Dalet. Lamed Beis, Yud Dalet. When Moshe Rabbein is pushing back at Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain for this request, he says, You've risen up, You've risen up, you've taken over the place, you are good successors of You know who you're following the model of? Your forefathers. Bad people. Why were they bad people? Who is he referring to? The Meraglim. You are walking in the footsteps of the Meraglim. You had the wrong, you had the wrong uh, role models. Where do you know this? How do you know this? The Targum. Look at the Targum right here. Paraglam and Beis Pasuk Yedalad. Targum says, Kamtun chalaf avasacham talmidei guvraya chayavah lo'osafa od atkov rugza da'ashem Yisrael. You've risen to the place of your forefathers as talmidim of sinners to add to the anger of Hashem. Talmidim, these two tribes, Reuven and God, they were never students of the Meraglim. They never overlapped with them. Why does Moshe Rabbeinu tell them they're coming at the end of the 40 years? The Meraglim were at the beginning of the 40 years. They didn't overlap. They didn't sit in the classroom. They were in chavrusas of theirs. According to the Targum's Taich, the translation, why are we identifying these Bnei Gad and Bnei Reuven as the students, the Talmidim of is Meraglam, whom they didn't meet, they didn't see, they didn't overlap with. Says Rav Moshe Shmuel Shapiro, the Rosh Hashiva Ber Moshe. Listen to this insight. He says, make no mistake. Every action we do in this world causes us to have students. We all have students. Whether you're in Chinuch or Rabbanus, 
whether you're a teacher or a professor, whether you're a Mora or a Rebbe, every one of us has students. Our students are the world who's watching. The world is watching. Our colleagues, our peers, those who report to us at work, the people at the supermarket, the gym, on the road, in our home, our neighbors, our nieces and nephews, in life. People are watching and learning from our behavior and our choices and our actions, and even when we don't sense it, even when we aren't aware of it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't sign up to be anybody's role model, we always are. And we have to be acutely aware of it. Says Moshe Shapira, Ben Egadah Ben Eruven came with an ask and an argument. They didn't mention, they didn't invoke, well, I learned from my teacher, I learned from my Rebbe, I learned from my professor. They didn't invoke any teacher. They simply had a request. And Moshe lashes out at them. And what does he say? Oh, I see your Talmidim of the Miraglim. Talmidim of the Miraglim? They say, what are you talking about? We never took their class. We were never in their shear. What do you mean Talmidim of the Miraglim? The answer is, he says, I see you watch them. And I see you've been influenced by them. And I see you're following in their footsteps. The Mishnah in Pirkei Eva says, If you possess these three qualities, you're a student of Avram. And if you have these other three qualities, you're a student of none other than the wicked Bilam. The three qualities to be a student of Avram, a good eye, a humble spirit, a moderate appetite, a student of Bilam, an evil eye, a haughty spirit, and a limitless appetite. And I ask you, did, did Bilam have a yeshiva? He had Talmidam. Mi Talmidav shall Bilam a Rasha? What yeshiva was he a Rasha Shiva of? Did he write a curriculum for Ayin Ra'a? For Nefesh Gavoa? What does it mean, Talmidam of Bilam? What's the answer? Whoever saw Bilam, whoever watched and learned from Bilam, consciously or subconsciously, explicitly or implicitly, became a Talmud of Bilam. If you watched and you learned from Bilam Din of Yeshiva, he wasn't a Rebbe, he didn't write a curriculum. If you watched and you learned, you're a Talmud of Bilam. This is the power of precedent. This is the impact and influence of our actions. It applies most to parents, as we just saw a moment ago from Rav Shaul Alter, continuing in the same theme. Shmuel Kamenetsky is also gesund and stark. He explains, even if your mother or father are not a Rebbe or Mora, they're not in Chinuch or Rabbanas, still, every time you bench, you offer a Herachaman for their well-being. And what do you say? Herachaman Yivarech Es, Avi Mori, and Imi Morasi. What do you mean, Avi Mori, Imi Morasi? My father's not a Rebbe, he's a businessman. My mother was a teacher, but she's also other careers. Why do you describe them as Mori and Morasi? Says Rav Shmuel, because every father is a teacher. Every mother is a teacher. Talmidim of the Miraglim. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ah, I see your Talmidim of the Miraglim. Talmidim of the Miraglim? I didn't take their class. I didn't read their book. I didn't sit in their shear. But you're following in their footsteps. You've been influenced. You're learning. You're listening. You're watching. It applies to every one of us. We have to know. You know, we're living in an age, everyone wants to sign up for what career? They want to be influencers. I want to be an influencer. I want a lot of following. I want people to send me free stuff. I want to be an influencer. We're all influencers. Every one of us is an influencer. Online, offline, we all create Talmidim all around us in the way that we behave, whether people are watching or are not watching. There's an amazing poem from Mary Korzam. It's written for her mother, but could apply to everybody. Should I read it or move on? I'll read it quickly because it's a great poem. When you thought I wasn't looking, you hung my first painting on the refrigerator and I wanted to paint another. When you thought I wasn't looking, you fed a stray cat and I thought it was good to be kind to animals. When you thought I wasn't looking, you baked a birthday cake just for me and I knew little things were special. When you thought I wasn't looking, you said a prayer and I believed there was a God I could talk to. You thought I wasn't looking, you kissed me goodnight and I felt loved. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw tears come from your eyes and I learned that some things hurt, but it's all right to cry. When you thought I wasn't looking, you smiled and it made me want to look that pretty too. When you thought I wasn't looking, you cared and I wanted to be everything I could be. When you thought I wasn't looking, I looked. 
and I want to say thanks for all the things you did when you thought I wasn't looking. It's a beautiful poem. I reserve the right to use it for Yisker someday. It's a beautiful poem, but it's exactly me Talmidov. Ah, your Talmidim of the Miraglim. Avram Avinu left Talmidim, Bela Marasha left Talmidim. Every Av is a Mora, every Ima is a Mora. We all leave students because we're all influencers, and that's what the Targum is getting at here. Paraklam and Beis Pasuk Tezain. They approach him. And they say, we'll build pens for our flock and we'll build for our children. The Megid Yosef. Megid Yosef says, From all the way Pasuk Vav until now, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving them a hard time. How could you not come and join your brothers to fight? But he was wrong. He made an assumption about them. Because they came with the request, we want to live here, he jumped to the assumption that they weren't going to fight. But all along, they intended to first fight before they take up residence east of the Yardin. So why didn't they correct Moshe? Why didn't they correct Moshe immediately and say, no, 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 no. We always intended to fight. Our request is only after. says the following. <clears throat> he tells a story the great Gary Rebbe from when he was a child. And he learned with his Chavrusa deep into the night. And because of that, he only went to sleep late at night, early in the morning, and he overslept. He came late, went to a late minion. And his Zayda, the Chidush Arim, came and gave him Musr. How dare you come late to shul? How could you go to the late minion? Don't be lazy. Don't push off. How could you procrastinate? How could you come late? Sisfasema says, I was quiet. And the Chavrusa said, Why don't you tell your Zayda the reason that you overslept, the reason you went to the late minion is because we learned until four in the morning. Your Zayda would have had such nachas. Why didn't you tell him? The Sisfasema says, Because an opportunity to hear Musa from my Zayda, I don't want to give an excuse or an answer. I embrace the opportunity for the Musa. Says Rav Megid Yosef, Rav Yosef Saratskin. Lo zachisi dimyon advarim. He says, but I don't get it. I don't understand. In the case of Chidush Arim, Svasemes, Chizku Binyan Tefillah B'Tzibur, V'lachrayis Klosu Metalsal Nechad Admor, V'chashash Chil Lashem, Kan Moshe Rabbeinu, Nazal B'Shevet Ruvain, V'gad, Al-Davar Mesuyim Shayim Mut'ah. There, the Chidush Arim was giving valuable Musa, which was worthwhile to receive, even if it didn't apply in the particular circumstance. But here, Moshe Rabbeinu was entirely wrong. He made an assumption they don't plan to come fight, but they did plan to come fight. So it was Musr that had no value, even in any other context, because it was simply wrong, wonders the Megid Yosef. So how is the Svasemis answering the question? How did he apply his personal story to this particular case? Especially given how intense the Moshe Rabbeinu's Musr was. And why did Moshe jump to that assumption? Why didn't Moshe give the benefit of the doubt? Why didn't he ask Mo- the people, you want to settle here? Okay, tell me more. What's your plan? What's the chronology? Are you coming in? Why did he jump to an assumption? And why did he give Mishtak Musr? Ulam, im Moshe says the Megid Yosef, if you examine the words of Moshe after B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain correct him, lo ra'inu Moshe doesn't apologize. Moshe doesn't take it back. Moshe doesn't slow down. He doubles down. So near Shafacha Birurim, even after they clarify, Moshe still considers it to be a chait. What's going on over here? What's going on over here? Says the Megid Yosef. Nira. He says it was a twofold failure. Number one, they failed to express a connection to the land and to Jewish destiny. And number two, they failed to express the proper priority, as we've mentioned, to their children. 
What happens? When they went to go fight, they stayed longer. They didn't return home for many years. When they came home, their children had the hairstyle of the pop culture around them. They cared more because they failed to express a commitment to their children. It wasn't about a failure to their brothers. It wasn't about a failure to the land. It was about a failure of the priorities to their own children, says the Megid Yosef. Okay, let's move over. Actually, one, not yet. First, V'yisim Nekim. Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk Chaf Beis. Lamed Beis, Chaf Beis. V'yisim Nekim. Oh. V'yisim Nekim Hashem u'mi Yisrael. Lamed Beis, Chaf Beis. Moshe's condition. He says, do this. V'yisim Nekim Hashem Yisrael. And then you will be clean from Hashem and from your peers. Nobody can make an assumption. Nobody will misunderstand. V'yisim Nekim. The Mishnah in Shkolem says, "Gamliel Zuga Shalor Rabbiosi Eizah Chamer Mikulam V'Yisim Nekiim Hashem Omi Yisrael Uperish Arayvet Eizah Mitzvah Torah Chamer Yosem Mikulam Sheidbak Baha Adam." What is the most important mitzvah in the entire Torah that a person should cling to? V'Yazeh Heishev Rabbiosi Rabbiosi answered, "Shemitzvah Shal V'Yisim Nekiim Hashem Omi Yisrael is the mitzvah Chamur Shebetorah." Be above board. Be above suspicion. Act in a way that you are admired for your honesty, for your integrity, for being straight, for going on the straight and narrow. That's the most important. It's not enough to say, I look in the mirror, and as long as Hashem is good with me, I'm good. You have to be above board from Hashem and above board from your peers, Yisrael. Above board from both. We don't have time, but there's an incredible story of the Chassam Sofer when it comes to this Mitzvah, a mitzvah, the Mishnah in Shkolem, the Ravid says, the most important mitzvah to cling to. When you have to make a decision all the time, ask yourself, will I fulfill V'yisim Nekim? Will I raise suspicion or lower it? Is this above board or will people criticize? We used to have a member of our executive board who would say, if you can't do it in front of your spouse, it's cheating. If you wouldn't do it in front of your spouse, it's cheating. If you wouldn't speak that way to the opposite gender, if you wouldn't look at that thing, if you wouldn't dress that way, if you wouldn't act that way, if you can't do it in front of your spouse, don't do it. And this leader would say, if we wouldn't do it in front of the entire congregation, don't do it. If you're questioning, is this ethical, unethical, moral, immoral, is this in the gray, should we do it? If you wouldn't do it in front of the congregation, don't do it. If you can't do it, that's what I tell my accountant. I want you to push the envelope as far as you can. Save me as much money as you can. But if you wouldn't do it, if the IRS agent were sitting next to you watching, then don't do it. Push the envelope as far as you can, but file the tax return as if the IRS agent is watching over your shoulder. The most strict, the most stringent, the mitzvah sheyidbak ba'adam that we have to cling to closely. Let's move over to Parshas Maseh for the last few minutes. Page nine, nine eighteen. These are the journeys of the Jewish people in the hands of Moshe and Aaron. Moshe wrote down all the travels. Last year we spoke about. We won't mention it again. A beautiful Ramban. Vicheska Levenstein, the Mashkiach, expands on the Ramban. Why in the world are we saying this? The whole sing-song here, the summary of the journey. A couple of pages here. It's a double Parsha. It's a rough Shabbos. It's still the summer, long day, still. Long double Parsha. Save us some space. Really? You have to tell me every detail? I drove from Boca Raton to New York. Then we stopped at this bathroom. Then we went to this wrap stop. Then we needed another bathroom. Then the kid diaper needed to be changed. Then we got drinks over here and we got drinks over there, which meant we needed to make another bathroom stop over there. Then we slept over at the hotel. Then, uh, okay, you're here now. We're enjoying each other's company now. What do I care? Why are you ruining our time now by reviewing every step in the process? Who cares? Who cares? I need to know all of this. Why are we reviewing it? Listen to last year, a beautiful Ramban, a beautiful Ramban. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote 
all the details. Vayechtov. Vayechtov. He wrote it all out. The Orachayim here writes, why do I need the Torah to testify that Moshe wrote it? Vayechtov Moshe. Moshe wrote it. Did Moshe write the entire Torah? Maybe not the last few psukim. He wrote with tears. How did Moshe write about his own demise? But the whole Torah, 99% of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote. So this section in particular has to be introduced with Vayechtov Moshe that Moshe wrote it, and the, and the Orachayim HaKadosh answers, Achidosh Nifla. Moshe Rabbeinu Kasev Seder Maso Shtei Pa'amim. Ki betchila kasva Moshe api Hashem la'asma b'kinkaso, komasa masa b'shas nasiyasun v'chani yasun, ulodugma b'yom shayotu b'nei Yisrael mimitzrayim, kasva Moshe b'pinkaso, v'yisru b'nei Yisrael me'ramseis. V'kasharachanu b'sukos, kasva b'pinkaso, v'yachanu b'sukos. Says the Orachayim, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down a journal of the travels twice. First time he wrote it down, when it happened, in real time. So, Hashem said, travel. He took out his little notebook, his little pen, and he wrote down, today we left and we traveled. Hashem said, settle. He took out his little notebook, his little pen, and he said, today we settled. And when they got to Arvos Moav, Kodesh Baruch Hu told Moshe, now take out your little notebook, take out your little pinkus, and I want you to integrate, collect, transcribe all the journeys and the Yisadrim B'Torak V'Yasedashem K'suvim B'Pinkaso. Put them together in the order that you had them in your little, little notebook. You had a journal, you kept a journal on the journey. Great. Now transcribe it all into the Torah, incorporate and integrate it all into the Torah. And that says the Orachayim HaKadosh is why the Torah introduces this section with Vayichtav Moshe Es Motzayin L'Masayim. Interesting. What was the significance of that? Interesting, Arachayim. Good. The Degamachan Ephraim quotes something from his Zayda. The Degamachan Ephraim Zayda was the Hilagabal Shemtov. Duh, Shashamati Beshem Adoni Avizikani, I heard from my Zayda. Kikola Masaos Hayu Membez. How many travels did we have? Count them up. <coughs> 42. Start and stop, 42 journeys, 42 travels. And a person needs to know, Emerging from your mother's womb is your own personal exodus, your own Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And until the last stop on the journey, which is the world to come, the final stop, Every human being goes through 42 stops. The reason this is recorded and the reason we read it and review it is to remember that just like Claudius Yisrael had 42 stops, they had 42 legs to their journey, our book is written with 42 chapters. And our chapter, our book is not yet done. We don't know the next chapter. We don't know the next stop. And the same faith Claudius Yisrael had is the faith and the attitude that we too need to bring on these journeys. Now you'll notice a change in the Psukim. It says, Vayachtov Moshe es motza'ayin lemasa'ayim, e'lemasa'ayim lemotza'ayim. We reverse it. Why do we reverse it? What's going on over here? So again, the Megid Yosef, Yosef Surotskin says, why do we reverse it? Mahusa v'tivo nikva api motza'ayin lemasa'ayim. V'gam api masa'ayin lemotza'ayim. There's two ways to view our life. There's two components to our life. Motza'ayin lemasa'ayim hinukudus ha-motza'ayin shalamasa'ayim. Motzea means from the starting point of our journey to where we went to our destiny. The starting point of our life and to our destiny is reflecting our DNA, our background, our personality, our upbringing, our... What influences a person more? Is it their... Nature or nurture? Both. Both shape and mold the person. So listen to what he says. A beautiful Megid Yosef. Why do we reverse it? On the one hand, I have to take everything about who I am. What are my physical features? What are my talents and skills? What are my liabilities? What's my DNA? 
What's my personality? What's my family background? What's my nature and nurture? That's Motza A.M. and Masa A.M. I have to take all of that and help it find meaning. I have to manifest, I have to express it. I have to use it in this world. But the opposite's also true. I'm able to set goals and strive and have drive in this world, and then that will give meaning to everything about who I am and my genetics and my DNA and where I come from. So my DNA and the family I'm born, in, born into and the time and place in which I'm born into, all of that is al pi Hashem. But but where I go and what I do with it, who I become and what I achieve, that's biad Moshe va'aron, that's up to me. That's up to me. So part of it is predetermined. It's al pi Hashem. The motza'eim al pi Hashem. But the masa'eim in the reverse order, that is biad Moshe Aaron. That's up to me. That's up to each and every individual to give those, that DNA, to give what we were born with, to give it meaning, to give it purpose, to give it direction. That is all up to us. What's not up to us is that we're out of time. So even though there was more to talk about, we didn't get to the Ir Miklat. I love the Ir Miklat. We didn't get to the Ir Miklat. Why is the stay in the Ir Miklat determined and dependent on the lifespan of the Kohen Gadol? We were going to share eight or nine reasons. So tune in next year, Parshas Masay. And until then, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.